Welcome to the Lancaster Ballroom at the Savoy Hotel. You look lovely. Thank you all very much for being here. I can see the glittering of uh, proper old diamonds. It's very, very, very impressive. Um, I feel like Becky Sharp at the ball. Um, I feel like Donald Trump at a KKK coffee morning. <laughs> White coffee for Donald. <laughs> Welcome to the Marie Antoinette Centre for Recovering Rococo and Baroque <laughs> Addicts, as you can see. Um, we've gone from like hyper-minimal to maximal, maximal, basically. Um, I know it's, it's almost a bit much, but I love it. It's like actually like being inside Marie Antoinette, now that I think about it. Just, just as busy as well. Um, poor Marie Antoinette. Um, Welcome to the world's most luxurious um, and most literary hotel. And if we needed further proof of it, can I say that the reason I was a bit late downstairs is that um, I, I didn't have any cufflinks with me. And I called reception and said, I don't suppose you have any cufflinks, do you? And a butler appeared about five minutes later. And I was like, could you maybe help me put them on? And, you know, anyway, he's still there. <laughs> Which is really nice for him. Um, so anyway, it was on this very site, actually, just out front where the fountain is, um, that William Blake died just a couple of years before the hotel opened in 1889. And it was here in room 346 that Oscar and Bosey uh, enjoyed themselves. Uh, before scandalising the country. And I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Oscar Wilde, and I think quite a few of you might not be here too. So should we say thank you to Oscar? <laughs> Cheers to Oscar. So, and it was here in uh, 1936 that H.G. Wells had his 70th birthday party. And I find it really weird when you look at the list of people who was there that it's people like A. A. Milne. You think, well, they didn't have much in common, did they? But apparently they did anyway. So, um, and more recently, Kathy, uh, Kathy Letty and uh, Faye Weldon were writers in residence. So it's a wonderful literary pedigree. Um, and tonight we get to welcome the literary salon. And we have four of the very finest writers that there are. Um, before we get to them, much has happened since our last salon. Um, we have lost many talented, radical, creative creators and thinkers, um, and Nancy Reagan has died. Um, other things have happened. The Oscars, Europe, yes, no, don't care. Um, and the Underwoods are back. Um, so I've really taken some time out from binge-watching House of Cards just to be here. I'll be back to that later. Um, before we go any further, please join me in thanking Corny and Barrow for providing the delicious wine that you're drinking this evening. There's a really funny moment where we were organising this and they said to me, they said, is it a thirsty crowd? <laughs> a room full of writers and people that love books. Yes, 200 bottles later, um, you've, you've drunk them dry. Um, and hello again if you're listening to us on British Airways. We are podcast. Again, please don't put your seat back. I have very long legs. So, I will just stick my knee in your back and I don't care. I'll do it for 10 and a half hours. If it hurts me as much as it hurts you, I don't care because I will at least feel good about it. Anyway. So you know already that our first guest is hilarious. You know that she has cats, that her cats are to her small furry people, um, that she likes to dress up as her favorite television characters. 
You know that she is the same height as Kylie Minogue. You know that she lives with depression. She calls it the crab of hate, but what you won't know until you've read her memoir, which is incredibly brilliant and very brave, is just how vicious this crab is. Tonight, she unveils Cheer Up Love, Adventures in Depression with the Crab of Hate. Please welcome for her premiere, Radio 4's favourite lady gay, Susan Kalman. That doesn't look awkward at all. No, I did that quite well, I think. How are you? I'm very good. How are you? Should we move? Do you want to should we do a bit of... Yeah, look, it's OK. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Dean. You're welcome. That's OK. Hi. <laughs> this is the first time I've ever done anything like this. You people are terrifying to me. Do you really <laughs> think One person scary? clapping, you bastard. <laughs> They're not scary. They're no, lovely. they're not scary. They're very beautiful. They are. Very beautiful, and he is a very hot young man. Which one? The painter fella. Oh, yes, the one is. that can't hear us. Yes, he is. He's very pretending hot. now that he can't hear you. Really? He's blushing violently, even in demi shade. Is he? Yes. yes. So you're going to read a couple of B bits for us? I yes, I was just going good. to. Um, as I say, I, this is this isn't published yet, and it's uh, the first time I've ever written a uh, a book of any kind. And uh, I don't know what happens at these literary salons. Uh, I've been a stand-up comedian for ten years, so I know the the basements of uh, many comedy clubs incredibly well, but I don't know what to do. So I'm just going to read the introduction, and then I thought we could have a chat nice. uh, about filthy things. That would be lovely. So uh, this is just the, the introductory part uh, of the book. Um, Dawn breaks over Glasgow, as it always does, to the sound of snoring. My cats and wife combine in glorious harmony, voices reverberating and growling a tune that shakes my flat to the rafters. I try to extricate myself from the pile of fur and human, but it's not easy. Cats, in particular, sleep with such sincerity that it seems a shame to wake them from their dreams. And there's an awkward scientific phenomenon that turns a tiny feline into the breathing equivalent of a boulder, requiring the force of a bulldozer to shift them. In the end, I'm forced to crawl out of the bottom of the bed, and after the pain of my contortion subsides, I take time to congratulate myself for winning what is essentially a game of mammal kerplunk. <laughs> I don't mind the fact I'm left to my own devices for a while. In truth, I enjoy a few solitary hours in the morning to appreciate the finer things in life. My first sip of strong coffee, the radio quietly playing in the background, and the occasional after eight for breakfast. It's at these times I can truly appreciate what I have, not in a material sense, of course. I don't have a huge house and I'm not, I'm not dripping with diamonds by any manner of means. It's never been my aim. At some points in my life I've been so miserable I would have settled for being vaguely content. But I'm pleased to say I've surpassed that lowly aim. Right now I can sincerely say I'm happy. What's caused this shift of emotional tectonic plates? Well, I've been with my wife for 14 years, married for four. I have several children who are cats, a job I love, friends who support me and make me laugh, and a family who continue to put up with me despite the fact I embarrass them on a regular basis. Crucially, though, it's not just the people around me who make me happy. For the first time in my life, one of the main sources of happiness is much closer to home 
It's little old me. After decades of hating myself, I finally decided maybe I'm not as bad as I first thought. Perhaps I have something of value to contribute to society. Not in a world-changing Mother Teresa way, but on a smaller, less religious scale. In the past couple of years, I've even been known to throw myself a compliment, a shocking turn of events, which I couldn't have predicted if I was Derek Akora. In a bold move, I finally embraced the idiosyncratic ways, accepted my eccentricities, and wrapped up my model and personality in a bow to present to the world. I am what I am, and I'm not sorry about that, unless I get drunk and insult someone, which doesn't happen very often anymore. <laughs> Sitting at my desk, writing this book, I'm well aware of the fact my life could have gone in a very different direction. Through luck, hard work and persistence, I'm here and ready to tell my tale to the world. And so this is it. I hope you enjoy it. I'm quite forceful in my opinions at times, and I make no apologies for that. Sadly, I can't make you like me. I'm not a hormone. Hello. Hello. Hi. Uh, we were um, messaging each other about this, and, and you were talking about, you know, feeling, feeling nervous, and I was thinking, it's kind of a bit late because you've written the book now. Yes. Yeah. There's a curious thing though when someone says to you, so basically, the publisher said to me in September, do you want to write a book? And I started it in October, and I finished it in November, and this is it. All the writers in the room right now are so, so hating you so hard. They're like, can you just go through the words again? I have read it. it, yes. it Joan Bakewell is actually a gog. She's, yes. She's, she's, she is. So, no, it is, it is a book and the words aren't huge. Yes, it's, the it's, it's not, not like lots of uh, pictures. So I didn't actually have any time to think about the fact I was writing the book until I realised I'd written a book and it was coming out. Mm. Because I was just sitting in my room going, oh, I'm just writing a book, that's fine. And so there's literally, uh, they asked me, middle of September, signed the contract, wrote it middle, yeah, so I wrote it in two did, months. Did they specifically want you to write, I mean, this is essentially a memoir, it's much more a memoir yes. than it is a self-help book. You do, you do talk about what's been helpful for you, but you don't you know, make prescriptions. Um, but did, were you really clear about what you wanted the book to be? Did it, was it just sort of like, right, this is the opportunity to, to write about this thing? I did a, I did a Radio 4 show on the fact that I have depression and uh, lots of people uh, got in contact afterwards and I thought, well, um, in the confines of a 26-minute radio show, you can only say so much. So I wanted to write a very honest book about uh, what, it's, what it's been like and the fact that now I, I'm, I'm depressed and I, I really quite enjoy being depressed. I think it's a positive thing. How is it positive for you? Well, I'm grumpy and I see the worst in life, but you need people like me. <laughs> if everyone was positive all the time, it would be a really crappy place to live. It would be Canada. It would be Canada. <laughs> But you know, the banking crash happened because everyone was like, hey, it's fine, we're all going to be fine. I should have been in there going, nope, no, it's all going to go wrong. <laughs> so I, I think it's, this is who I am. And I always think the worst of things. But it's what makes me a beautiful bundle that, of joy. That is, that is part of what makes you a beautiful <laughs> bundle of joy. But I, I mean, it is, it's a cliche about talking about the tears, tears of a cloud. Yes. But you discovered when you left being a solicitor, which we can talk about I mean, a bit more detail, mm -hmm. but not that much because it's terrifying. Um, but you, you went to become a, you went from being a solicitor to being a comedian, and you discovered that in fact loads of them were 
hideous. Oh, comedy is a terrible place. Um, when I started doing stand-up, I thought everyone would be cheerful and it would be brilliant. Oh, God. They're awful. Uh, Alan Davis uh, says comedians are uh, split up into either self-harmers or golfers. <laughs> Uh, I'm both, which, uh, <laughs> which makes me a lucky lady. Uh, but honestly, the first time you do it, you think, oh, it'll be great, and backstage everyone will be really happy and telling jokes to each yeah. other. Comedians are the most bitter, vitriolic, depressed people I've ever met. It is hellish. I went on a, a car journey to Norwich once with five other comedians, and I wanted to throw myself out of that car. They imagine. are terrible people. But that's what, that's what bonds us together and it's why I have found the perfect job for me. Stand-up is the perfect job for someone like myself. Well, except it wasn't because for a long time you were failing. You were not. I was you failing were, very failing badly. You really badly. <laughs> yes. and it was, so tell us about why it wasn't going well and what you think changed Well, there's it. a chapter in the book about uh, obviously now, you know, news quiz uh, and all that kind of stuff but for the first, so the first year I, I was a lawyer, I was earning a lot of money um, doing very well specialised in data protection the sexiest of all <laughs> legal specialisms. Uh, gave it up, did the whole thing you do, walked into my boss, resigned, said, I'm going to be a comedian, I'm going to be famous. My first year I earned £500, second year 750 I think, third year 1000 um, And I was at the fringe in 2010, show was not good. And it was because my agent at the time had told me, you need to get 10 minutes so that Michael McIntyre comes to see you or live at the Apollo comes to see you and you'll get on the television. And I was trying to do that and I cannot do that. If you come and see my shows, I tell a series of rambling stories which may or may not come to a conclusion. <laughs> I don't tell jokes, you know, I like to just tell stories about things. And so in 2010, it was, I mean, disastrous. Utterly disastrous. What's that, what's that like? Nobody coming to your show? No, they came. Interviews? They came, but sat saying nothing. Until you've performed a comedy show to 155 people on a Saturday night, none of whom make a noise for 55 minutes. Of course. Genuinely, if, even if people are angry at me, I can work with that. But just apathy, just people going, yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. And you have to contractually stay on stage for 55 minutes. Oh, God. So you have to finish the show. Mm. Even, you can't go, should we all just forget about it? And spend 25 you, minutes crying do, in front of them. No, you just have to do the whole thing. And then you, the thing is with comedy, when it's not going well, you, you amp it up and you start going... <laughs> <laughs> and just telling the jokes really loudly. <laughs> Like and it was awful. Phone, like, like to somebody who doesn't understand you, you're just shouting. Yes, you just go, no, that was funny. Yeah. Did you not get that? Oh, fuck it. Um, so it didn't go well, and I took a year off. Um, and then I went back in 2012 with a show about equal marriage, because um, at the time it wasn't legal. And there was a lot of discussions in uh, Scotland. Mm -hmm. I saw you in a BBC Scotland documentary about being a gay. Yes, you did. Um, yes, I was going to recommend my parents watched it until I heard your anecdote, young man. Oh, sorry, Dutch filthy. Um, and so there's a bit in the book as well about I grew up in Scotland with um, clause 28, section 28, and Brian Souter's Keep the Clause campaign. Hateful. Yeah. Hateful campaign. Yeah. So there's a chapter called I'm Not Mad Because I'm Gay. Uh, because a lot of people go, oh, you're depressed because you're, you're a lesbian. I actually find being a lesbian a very joyful experience. 
Um, but it's undoubtedly growing up in a time where you saw great banners and people talking about how abnormal you were didn't necessarily help my self-esteem hugely. I think it's interesting in, in the book the way you, where you, the way you come at that, you say, yeah, I'm a, I'm a lesbian. You talk about how difficult it was for you understanding it for yourself and how that was made much more difficult. So in a sense, it's, it's, the, it's the homophobia, it's the stuff that happens about who you are, yes. not who you are, that, yes. that causes you the problem. Yes, and I, I still, people sometimes, there's an anecdote. Um, I was in Durham uh, doing a tour show and uh, someone tweeted me and said, there's a guy in the audience asking when you're going to be less lesbian. <laughs> now, in the first part of the show, I'm really not very lesbian. <laughs> you know, I don't come on stage with a poster of Sue Perkins or anything like that. I'm, I'm, quite, I'm quite under the radar. Um, but, and that was just because I'd talked about my wife or I'd said something. And I, I think it's very important that a lot of people think, oh, it's fine. When, when I travel around the country to smaller towns, it's still not fine to be who I am. Mm. It's still not fine. And so you have to go to these places and say, and you feel a brist, you still feel a bristling, because the thing is, I'm a I'm a gay on Radio Four, but I'm a nice gay. Mm. I'm a I'm a Sandy Toxford gay. Mm. <laughs> you know, the nice the person you can invite to your dinner party, but they wouldn't bring their strap on. You know, it's kind of. Is it, so there's nice gays, there's clear balding and sand. They're nice gays, and I'm a nice gay. And then people come and see my shows and go, "Oh no, you really are." And you go, "Yes, yeah, I really am. I am. I will talk about Gillian Anderson frequently during this show." There is a lot about Gillian Anderson. There's a lot about Gillian Anderson. If the book had an index, it would be Gillian Anderson. See also pages. I mean, yes. there's an awful lot of Gillian yes. Anderson. Yes, yes, which is Have why you my met wife. Which I met Gillian Anderson, and it was. Does she her. know that you met her? <laughs> <laughs> I met her at a comedy show and I stood silently in the wings and then I ran towards her and just went, can I have a photograph? And the photograph, she looks like a hostage. Because <laughs> 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 it's just me. Going, um, yeah, so, um, I, I, look, I love Gillian Anderson. I've always loved Gillian Anderson. She's a lovely woman. She's the second Mrs. Gallman. Okay, enough Gillian Anderson. <laughs> yeah. enough Gillian. So, but you, 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 you talked about how you went back back on stage, but it was when you were back on stage, you, you were talking about you know equal marriage. You'd kind of you'd found your voice. Basically, you were being yourself. <clears throat> yes, and I was talking about something that was important to yeah. me, and I was miserable. I was talking about how miserable I was, and suddenly I realised. Because when I was younger and I was depressed, uh, I didn't talk to anyone because I was terrified of talking to anyone. Because back in the day, if you talked to someone, there was a, a real and present danger. People would overreact and panic about it. And you that know, this it did happen. You'll have to tell them because I can't. Okay. Um, Susan talked earlier about self-harming, and in actual fact, what she's talking about is cutting. Um, and when she was 16, she had attempted suicide and was sectioned in Gartnavel, which is a very scary place for anybody, never mind a 16-year-old. Yes. yes. Um, and then, and then I stopped talking for 20 years. Because you thought that if you spoke again, they would send you back. Oh, gosh, I'm sorry. <laughs> yes. My, uh, my publicist is terrified this is what I'm going to do at every single event. <laughs> this is just the first one. Yes. Um, uh, so, yes, so I didn't talk after that because, uh, 
because you're terrified of being chucked back in again. Yeah. You know, to some secure facility. How long were you there? <laughs> Not long. Mm. I did the whole, oh, I'm so sorry, I made a mistake. I'm very happy now, I apologise. It's because I'm gay. That's yeah. what I said. Yeah. Oh, it must be because I'm a lesbian. I'm so sorry about that. Because that's how you got out of it. You said you were, you were, you, you know, you were gay and frustrated, so that's why you were depressed. My mum, I remember my mum, when, when I came out to her, um, sent me to our local GP um, uh, with, a, with a diagnosis gay. Um, that sounds like a really good afternoon show, doesn't yeah. it? Diagnosis gay. Um, and um, and I, she, sent me, she sent me there to see the doctor, who I'd seen like, since I was a kid, so she was like, well, of course you're gay. She's like, you know, I've seen you since you were three. Um, and, uh, you know, so I went back and told my mum about it. But what was really, my mum was really horrified that, you know, they didn't prescribe anything. But... A couple of years later, um, <laughs> I discovered, and my mum is now fine, but a couple of years later, I discovered that that doctor had left her husband for another woman. It was so good! I was like, diagnosis, lesbian. <laughs> <laughs> I would have been able to tell. Um, uh, you would have been able to tell. I, yes. you would, yeah. So what was it that yes. got you talking again? When did, so you, there was uh, stand-up, went, but it was also therapy. It was therapy. I went to a, there's a, a chapter in the book. Uh, I went through some very bad experiences with therapists, and part of it is saying, if therapy doesn't work for you, it might just be that you've got the wrong therapist. It's not you, it's the therapist that's shit. Um, so one of them asked me to draw a picture about my depression, which was hilarious. Um, one of them laughed at me for what I was wearing. One of them... I mean, I read that. I mean, did yeah. she actually... Was it, it was a woman, wasn't it? Was it was a woman. She and laughed she... at me. Yeah, she laughed at me because I was wearing, I was wearing a biker jacket I'd borrowed, and I, I'm not good at accessorising, so I had a tapestry handbag. I know it was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I know it was wrong. She you didn't need to laugh at me. She her. didn't. She didn't need to laugh at me. And then, <laughs> and then I had a therapist who uh, essentially fell in love with me, mm, and okay. then asked why I didn't love her back. So. I stopped for a while, and then I found a therapist who was brilliant. Mm. So part of it is saying, you know, that's over the period of kind of 20 years to mm. finally find somebody who was good. So what it says is if you've tried therapy and it doesn't work, it might just be you've gone to the wrong therapist. So don't stop. Yeah. You know, so I went to therapy. My wife is fantastic. She, she is really amazing and puts Are you up with therapy this. now? No. Okay. No. You'd go, I mean, it's always an option for you, right? I learned some techniques, which helps, and I've, got, I've always got that option. But I find now I'm, I'm much better at spotting the signs of when I'm about to get into a hole of depression and stopping it uh, by dealing with what, what the problems and what are. what are the signs? Your signs? Because everybody's different. You make, yes, you make that uh, raging paranoia, raging, utter Facebook stalking everyone I ever knew and finding out why they've got a better life than me. Just okay. sitting, Facebook stalking, wondering why I don't get anything. Anger, a lot of anger. So I can imagine you really, really... How angry? Oh, I'm awful. I've got a terrible temper. So I've started boxing. Oh, I do too. It's great. Yes, so I've started going... One of the things I've done is I've started going to... I've got a personal trainer. I've started doing hardcore exercises, boxing. So I, I, I get my kind of anger out in, in good ways. Yeah. And uh, writing the book was very difficult. It was oddly difficult, but... Why do you say oddly? Because it's I thought it'd be stuff fine. in there. Well, you thought it would be fun to write about all Turns that. out I've never actually told anyone about what happened to me in the past. 
And writing it down, I went, oh, God, that was horrific, wasn't it? Um, But one of the reasons I did it was that uh, uh, a a few people have said they're they're depressed, but when I've talked to people about it, so many people have gone through periods of depression. And what I've tried to do is be very honest so that I say in the book, carry around a copy of the book with you and see if you can talk to someone else about it if you're feeling a bit down. or Because we need to talk about it. Mm. Because I'm not, I'm not mental. I'm not a mental person. But when you say, if you're a, I say, if you're a lesbian on television, you're depressed and a, probably a killer. Yeah. Or you get killed. Or, or you, you get, get killed. killed. This is what happens, because mental health problems means that no one can react normally to any situation. So if you're a depressed person, you're clearly going to do something wrong. Mm. So what it is, is normalising it. And I, I don't like people thinking that I'm someone that they should listen to. But if people see me or hear me on the radio and think, oh, God, even she has it, then it's a positive thing, I think. And then maybe people won't go through 21 years before they start talking about it. I think. We're going to take a couple of questions now. She's up. She's up. Questions? Okay, that'll be be Sylvia. Um, And then we'll take another question after Sylvia. Hi. I think it's Sylvia. Hello. Uh, Yes, go ask your question. Um, she was going to ask about cats. She hasn't, she, but that's a kind of subtweet about cats that she'll get to you later. If um, yeah, it's uh, fine. Could you have? Is there, is there just one bit of advice that you think is the most important bit? Yes, it's just it's to tell someone. In the book, I go through uh, a series of steps to identify the correct person to talk to about the fact you have it, because you shouldn't just tell anyone, because some people are rubbish. Yeah. Some people don't care about you, so don't just tell anyone. Find out the right person to talk to. But honestly, if you keep it all inside your head, you end up exploding, and that's not the right way to be. Um, so I genuinely think just to tell someone about it, pick the right person, and talk to them about it. And maybe do it for the right reasons, because you're very honest in the book as well about the times <laughs> when, you, when, you, when you were moping around university going, I'm depressed, pay me attention. Pay yes. Attention. Oh, depressed. yeah, I'm very honest about the fact that depressives are really selfish bastards sometimes. <laughs> you know, and I used it because I was interesting at university and I could understand the Smiths because I was depressed too. And, uh, you know, I took it a little bit too far, I think, in terms of trying to be interesting by being depressed. I'll take one more question. I can't see you all out there. Has anyone else got a question? Everyone's just terrified of me now. No, they're not. No, you can't have another question. No. (laughs) Jojo Moyes. Oh. Yeah. Oh, that's a really good question. When you were asked to draw a picture of depression, what did you draw? Well, uh, she said, draw how you're feeling, and I drew a picture of a cat sitting beside a duck. (laughs) (laughs) To piss her off. (laughs) Seems like a really good place to leave it. Thank you, Susan Calvin!